Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there's an exciting new case study on the Elixir website. It features the company V7, or V7 Labs, where they are using Elixir for orchestrating computer vision. So the write-up includes going over their tech stack, which includes things like RabbitMQ, Broadway, and how they're pushing work to be done through other programs like ImageMagick and FFmpeg. Oh, and they're hiring. So if you're interested in something like this, it's a great read just to understand what they're doing and how they're pulling the stack together, because I think this really leverages one of Elixir's strengths, which is orchestrating and pushing work out to areas that might be, you know, where you're using Python or C libraries or something like that to do specific work like ImageMagick and FFmpeg. It's a great read. Link in the show notes. Yeah, last episode was about Crawly too, which is also about orchestration. So yeah, Elixir's good at that. Uh, speaking of orchestration and maybe like your tests, um, Phoenix is starting to use something called Earthly for running tests on CI and here's the here's the clincher and locally. If you've ever felt like you can't replicate things that seem to fail on CI or you want to get the kind of breadth of testing that CI gets, but locally, you might consider looking at Earthly. Um, so a quick description of Earthly. Earthly is, it looks like uh, this, by the way, I, I haven't used it. So this is completely an observation from me, right? This is not coming out of experience. So you might want to check out the Phoenix Framework uh, repo to see how they use it. But just observing it, it looks like a, a make file and a GitHub Actions and Docker file all got together and, and they're all in one file. It's like pieces of, all, of each of those all, all, all together. Looks really interesting. Um, so if you're interested in solving that problem of running all that stuff that happens in CI locally, check out Earthly. Speaking of CI, you may have heard of a person named Sasha Yurik. He seems to be interested in this topic as well. He just released an, a, a package called CI. That's pretty cool that that name was even free on Hex. Interesting. So go check it out. Um, this is an, an entirely Elixir-based CI system very early. Uh, I don't think that he would recommend using it right now, but interesting to see how uh, what CI would look like um, run completely from or starting from Elixir, at least. Um, so interesting uh, directions there. Up next, Oban Web 2.5 was released with some enterprise features. Some of those things might include per-user access controls, customizable audit logging, telemetry for dashboard actions, and much faster stats queries. Check in the show notes if you're interested. OpenPro is one of those commercial paid-for libraries, and we talked with Parker Selbert in episode 29 about that. It's relevant because just recently, Hex 0.21 was released, and this adds a couple really big features. It adds the ability to do registry self-hosting, improve diff and dependency improvements, and it adds uh, something called mixhex.sponsor task, and more. There's a link in the show notes where you can see a blog post right up about this, but I just want to mention a few things I thought were relevant. The self-hosting option includes a really nice guide on how to set it up yourself, so you can have your own custom hex running. This might be interesting for projects like Oban and Muzak, where they're offering paid-for options. If you're wanting to do self-hosting of a hex where you get a lot of the other benefits of hex, like being able to do version diffs and tagged versions and everything, then this might be a really good way to go. So it's still early and we don't know yet how well that will fit, but it's something that's very interesting. And I think 
if people are interested in offering a pro-level version of a library, then this might be something to look at. So I've never used a separate hex repo. Is there a way that you can just specify in the parameters of your dependency, like a different location to find that repo? You know, I don't know. I was looking to see if there was a way to set that up. And that's something that's still kind of an unanswered question for me. So that's something we'll have to watch for. And as you might have guessed, these features are the last pieces to come out of Dashbit's Bytepack initiative, which was shelved and open sourced. So it's awesome just to see that these these made their way into Hex. Cheers for that. One more item is that Jose Valim is requesting written guides or blog posts about people who have used Mix Phoenix Gen Auth and have customized it. So if you've done things like customizing the Phoenix Gen Auth for doing JWT for API access or anything like that, officially, the project won't be offering customizations for the different purposes and applications that you might use. So they're asking for the contributions from the community to help with that so people can have an easier path with adoption. Erlang LS recently was released. It's a language server that goes along with VS Code. I guess it's not just VS Code specific, right? You can use them with any kind of editor. Right. But along with this, there was a VS Code extension update that pairs it. So yes, yeah, so there is there is that integration. Some things to point out here are the type spec suggestions via type ER, improved support for parse transforms, handling macros in patterns. If you thought about playing with Erlang code yourself, these developer tooling experiences can make a big difference. So it's great to see these things coming out. Another item is there's been several articles written about Pedal. And we've talked about Pedal on this podcast a number of times. And Pedal being the technology combination of Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind CSS, Alpine JS, and LiveView. I'd written a blog post on Thinking Elixir. One was written by Lars Wiekman that was posted on changelog.org. And Bruce Tate wrote one on his blog. So what's interesting is we're all kind of taking the same topic and kind of taking different angles from it. And I'm talking to the Elixir community about advocating for the use of these other pieces like Tailwind and Alpine. And Lars Wiekman took the aspect of like, hey, I'm bringing this message to people who are not in the Elixir community. And so it's just great to see all this discussion around this tech stack, because I think it really is a powerful combination and encourage people to check out any of the, any one of these articles to get a better idea of what it is and how it can benefit you. I'm pretty excited about this. Like, I'm glad the folks are talking about it. As somebody that constantly spins up new projects, so I can tell you that getting the pedal stack up and running, yeah, that's quite a bit of boilerplate. So I, I wonder if there's I wonder if there's something that we can do to make that easier. You know, I remember back in the days, like on an old Windows machine or Mac machine, you would just download something called the LAMP stack, right? And you'd have these little start buttons in there that would get your MySQL server up and make sure that PHP is installed and all that kind of stuff. So like that was the LAMP stack that was really easy. So I wonder if we can harken back to that ease of experience, right, of, of getting things up and running. Yeah, maybe even just a uh, new like Phoenix generator project template that could get you started with a lot of those pieces wired up for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. Hey, Mark, is there any, uh, any news about Thinking Elixir at a certain conference coming up? Yes, we are super excited because we are going to be recording live at Lambda Days 2021. And so we're going to have a, a live session where we're going to be talking on February 16th, which is the first day of the conference. So we'd love for you, if you're at that conference, we'd love for you to come and hang out and, and be part of that show. So we're excited about that. So that, that's something to look forward to for us. And that's it for the news.
Today, I'm excited to have our special guest, Alan McGregor. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm super happy to be here. We have some interesting stuff to talk about because you have talked recently about some blog posts and things which I thought were really awesome because it talks about you know designing for failure and you know even going so far as to talk about the circuit breaker pattern. And it's really cool stuff. I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to Elixir was this idea of designing for failure and these fault-tolerant systems. So I love this topic. But before we jump into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Sure, absolutely. So I, I've been in Canada and Toronto for the past 12 years. Uh, I'm uh, originally from Mexico, which uh, if you look at my uh, name, is like the most Mexican name ever, right? Uh, <laughs> there's a kind of a funny story that I'm not going to get into it, uh, about that. I've been a software developer for something past 15 years now. Uh, mostly on the e-commerce consulting space, so like big e-commerce implementations uh, well across Canada and the U.S. Just recently, I switched to more of the product side of things. Like uh, right now, I'm working for a company called Humi. We're an all-in-one HR and payroll provider, and uh, which is tailored towards a small and medium businesses in, in Canada. On top of that, I'm also working on my own little micro SaaS uh, on the side. That is fully running on the pedal stack, uh, which I know you guys have, have touched in the past. Uh, so it's, uh, the Microsoft is called Site Guardian and it's essentially end to end, uh, site monitoring security products. So SSL expiration, domain expiration, SSL compliance, API monitoring. So I'm trying to build all those things and I'm leveraging Elixir on top of that in order to achieve those goals. Great. Well, Alan, so how did you end up getting started then with Elixir? Like, what was your path to finding and started working in Elixir? It, it was a, kind of an interesting one because I stumbled into Elixir back in, I want to say 2015, 2016. I was still working in the e-commerce space. And I was essentially looking to tackle a very specific problem with data integrations and pipelines. So there is a lot of data moving in e-commerce systems from like the actual e-commerce platform, order fulfillment, inventory, all that fun stuff, right? And at the time, we were working with Ruby on Rails and PHP, which not the greatest solution, not, not necessarily the everyone's cup of tea in terms of stack. So looking for a better way to, to handle those pipelines, I actually stumbled into the idea of flow-based programming which is kind of a conveyor belt uh, approach to dealing with data pipelines. And through that, I actually stumbled into a library called uh, Flowex, uh, which is, is an implementation of flow-based programming in Elixir. And that was essentially my hook into the Elixir ecosystem. Very cool. I have not seen Flowex. That is a sounds like an interesting flow-based programming with Elixir Gen Stage. Very cool. So a great library, and uh, one of the neat things about it is uh, the ability to scale every single step of the pipeline individually. So it's definitely worth a look if you're building any kind of uh, data pipelines. How does that relate to Broadway now nowadays? I think there is a little bit of a, an overlap. Uh, I haven't particularly done a lot of digging to compare them side by side, but they do serve a similar function. Uh, the approach might be slightly different, though. So I'd love to turn and talk about this uh, blog post, which was talking about the circuit breaker pattern in Elixir. And I just have to say like that I love the idea of designing for failure because in Elixir and Erlang systems, that's just like seems to be the mindset. And when I first came to Elixir, I was first coming from Ruby on Rails and the .NET kind of world. And there, the focus was always trying to handle the errors and recover from them. 
And then with supervisors and processes, the focus shifts to more, how do I start things up properly so that when they do blow up, because inevitably something will go wrong, then how do I just get back to a good state? And I feel like, so it's still the same kind of amount of time and focus that I have to kind of put into handling these situations. But instead of being on the recovery end from after it's happened, it's more on the, how do I handle it when I know it's going to happen? And I'm, it's more the front end. How do I get properly set up and recover to a good state? So when you think about designing for failure, what does that mean to you? And I think for me is, it's a bit of an extension of the let it crash philosophy and are like an elixir. Uh, when we're like, and there is several definitions of design for failure. Um, and a couple of interesting talks by AWS and Mozilla about what that means, uh, for them. But in, in the context that I'm talking is, is just an extension of that let it crash, right? With elixir and like the beam, you get a lot of things for free where you don't have to worry about all the things that can go wrong, right? If something fails, like it handles uh, cleanly. Uh, so you can just kind of focus to, to build on the happy path. The sign for fairly is, is kind of that extension to, to that approach, but a little bit more gears towards, okay, how do we deal with external services or things that are, are out of that uh, application context, right? So if I'm consuming an external service, API call, or even a resource like database, how do we handle failure in those cases? Because things are going to fail. Like eventually, eventually everything will fail. How do we handle it gracefully? Yeah. So like it really does kind of come down to that multi-system thing. Like I have a vendor that I'm accessing data and pulling it from. And like what happens when they're, they have, you know, like even, even if their site is fine, the network in between us could have a problem. What does my system do when I can no longer access something external that I depend on? Exactly. And that's exactly it, right? And there are several strategies and patterns that you can apply. Like the, the most common one, well, if the other the external service is, is failing, let's just retry. Retry until it succeeds, right? But that comes with a lot of gotchas and caveats where you can build something that accidentally uh, uh, runs a denial of service on the other system. You're just trying to recover, right? So you wrote a, a good blog post introducing people to the idea of the circuit breaker pattern from an Elixir perspective. Can you kind of give us an idea of what is the circuit breaker pattern and you know how does it fit into what we're talking about here? Right. And just to follow the example, right? So when you're dealing with an external service, I think it's important to understand kind of the use case and the context of where this pattern would be useful. Like imagine that you're you're working with a complex app, any part of the working with a complex app, you're going to have to either send data or receive data and like rely on an external API, an external service. Who knows what capabilities, stability, like uh, technology stack that app might be running. So you have to assume the worst, like at any given point that a remote service can fail. And it can fail by uh, for a number of reasons, right? It could be transient failures where, oh, well, there was a package loss and that particular connection uh, failed. Or there is a slow network connections or timeouts or... It's Black Friday, and then the particular service is just completely getting uh, obliterated by the amount of traffic, right? And those are kind of temporary, and you can assume that the request is most likely to succeed, right? So I can confidently say, okay, it failed. I'm going to be able to retry and, and try again and try again. So that's kind of the simplified version of or of the retrying pattern. And then there is a second category of problems where by any unknown reason or unanticipated events, the problem might be a little bit more persistent. It might take longer to fail. Like 
someone unplug a, a cable on the data center and like, the entire rack is, is, is down. So those or someone deploy a patch that all of a sudden took the entire application down. So now we're talking with complete failure of service. So how do you deal with those kind of failures when you're relying on external services? That's where the circuit breaker pattern uh, comes handy. It behaves very much like uh, the physical or analog, right? So an actual electrical switch or an electrical circuit breaker is meant to protect against like um, spikes in current. The similar way the circuit breaker pattern gives us a way to not only handle uh, failure, like you can have, it essentially can monitor rate of failure for a particular service. If we break at a certain threshold, we can completely close the circuit or uh, or open technically, open the circuit, like all the connections are uh, not going uh, to the external service and we can handle that either internally, returning an error, relying on cache, relying on a backup service. So it gives us a lot of flexibility of how we want to handle those particular scenarios. So I remember using a little bit of this circuit breaker pattern. I didn't use any libraries. I was just kind of writing it up manually. And I was dealing with a camera system kind of, and it could it could be offline at any moment. There was like no reason to believe it would even be online. So we had to be really careful. Um, and I just remember the code, there being a lot of code, like, I had to write quite a bit of code to to check at every step, like, because you kind of have to, like, forward on the error, right? And so it's like every step now needs to have a pattern match. If you get to me and I have an error, then pass the error on forward. But if there's not an error, then do my thing. But then if I have an error, then I need to do this other thing. And I just remember thinking, like, there's a lot of work here. Like, there's a lot of code here. Have you Have you felt like following this pattern because like my initial instinct is like it would just be great to use a with statement and just check all the success states it's so clean it's so easy right with state statements are so awesome but then you miss all of this opportunity to handle these errors correctly so like how do you deal with all of this code or am i just crazy and you don't feel like there's a lot of extra code or maybe it's just necessary when you're dealing with external services yeah, I guess the answer to that is it depends a little bit, right, on, on what uh, external service you're trying to apply this pattern for and the resource of potential failure. Like, there could be, I could certainly see some scenarios where it's just a lot of code. Uh, I think there there might be ways to address that in a little bit more clean way. You said, you mentioned the WIT uh, or use WIT for this. Uh, one of the libraries that I've been playing with, uh, with <laughs> is uh, the OK library, uh, which it, it deals with um, handling exceptions in a way that I find pretty clean uh, when there is a lot of different reasons why a function call or multiple might fail. So that could be a good solution for this. Uh, also, with the caveat that I really haven't implemented this pattern on something really, really big. It's been most, mostly like examples like the blog post and uh, smaller services. So there could be better alternatives that I don't know of yet. I know at work, we had an interesting situation. Our team was building a front end system that would talk to a back end system. You know, we're passing along orders. And one of the the interesting situations was, is the back end system would go down periodically for regular maintenance. And, you know, it's like, it'd just be down for like these windows of time. So we just had to build in this concept of, you know, I try to send some information to it and it's not available. So I have to be prepared to have local storage of those things so that when the system comes back up, I can send them on. But I under, I can imagine you're like what you're talking about there, like you don't want to DDoS, right? You don't want to say, oh, you're back up. Here's everything I've got all at once, right? You kind of have to 
let it warm back up, perhaps. I don't know. Like, what are your and thoughts on that? And we're back down again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, coming from the e-commerce world, that is way more common than I would like to admit. Like, that, that does happen a lot. So one of the neat things about this pattern is that you technically, like, your circuit breaker has three states, open, closed, and half open. So half open actually handles the, the case where you mentioned where you're kind of opening the circuit a little bit and letting a limited number of requests go back to that service for a couple of reasons and a couple of benefits. One, you're not overloading if you have a lot of backlog. And two, if it fails again, like if you just fall back, uh, like open the circuit again, like we're back to our fallback, which might be cash, might be a fallback service. So that, that allows you to handle that cleanly and that half open state is where there is a lot of room for creative implementation, I guess. Like there's some tons of things where that can be expanded and made robust. I think I've implemented this like in a bunch of different ways at my at my workplace as, as well. Like so Alan, you you're you work in e-commerce and I, I kind of do too, but on the sales tax side. And so we do a lot of imports from downstream systems or upstream, however you think of it, like big commerce and you know the, those those folks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the way I've seen it uh, implemented that this, the circuit breaker pattern implemented in a lot of different places, not just in my current job, but previous jobs too, is through a job system, right? The, through a job system. If, if, any, if anything in this job fails, it's, it's going to throw an exception of some sort. So in Elixir, that's the let it crash kind of concept, right? Yeah. It's going to throw an exception. And most of these job systems will retry it. And if they're good job systems, they'll retry it with an exponential back off. So that's that half open kind of thing, right? And you also have to tune the performance knob of uh, throughput, right? So the one way that, that we do it is is by limiting the amount of jobs that can be run in a particular queue. So in the at this store, they have a pretty low threshold, so we only have one worker at a, at a time working at it. So that, that prevents it from being overloaded too too quickly. That comes with a human intervention or human analysis, at least of the of the uh, of the backlog of jobs that you know we have to make sure that they're getting processed in the correct amount of time. You know that the that the queue is not back is is not in- increasing more, you know than than what we're able to process and that kind of stuff. So like, I mean, in my head, that feels like a circuit breaker kind of um, kind of pattern, but it's not necessarily in code that I wrote. It's just managed by a job system. Am I off on this? How how, is, how does that relate to a, a circuit breaker pattern then? I don't think it's a salt per se. It's just it, it's you're getting kind of the same benefits and the same behavior without necessarily like circuit breakers is more or at least my understanding of the pattern is more when it's kind of a live service, right? So you're wrapping an external call into the circuit better pattern in order to give you that robustness. You're kind of leveraging a little bit more on the queues and the jobs and having the ability to retry the entire job if there is a failure. So it's, it's a slightly different, but it gets you kind of to the same the same place. Now, the fun part on the example that you provided is there is a little bit of human intervention, intervention that needs to happen because, like, someone has to decide how much open the floodgates, right? For how many jobs, uh, like, they get processed. With this pattern, you could build that into the logic and slowly on half open state let the system catch up without necessarily having to have a person making that decision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thinking back to FlowX and Flow, that topic of back pressure and how much it yes. can produce and consume at a time, 
is also handled in probably a more elegant way than just letting things fail and queue up in a job system. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I agree that may, that's a, that's probably a more elegant solution to, you know, handling that, that problem of uh, back pressure. Yeah. I, I know I've worked on a, a FinTech system where we were working with uh, a, like a financial institution and they had the problem, like we, we would send over data in one API request and then I could turn around, like say, Hey, create this record. And I could turn around immediately and query for that record. And I'd say, oh, I don't have that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, you're exposing to me that you're, that all of the read requests are going to a read replica. And it hasn't synced yet. <laughs> so I, I'm having to build in these delays and stuff like that. To like, let stuff on their back end happen. Yeah. I want to get back into your article. Because one of the things, you know, we're talking about job queues as an implementation. And in your article... You show how you can kind of build this circuit breaker switch pattern with a, a gen server and like a gen state machine. So I'd love to kind of talk about that and how you feel that's helpful. You kind of need that gen state machine, right? Because the, the circuit breaker, uh, the magic is keeping track of that current state. Is, is the, the circuit open, closed, have open. So I'm leveraging, that's one of the beauties of Elixir is like you kind of the foundation for a lot of stuff. It's already there and like super easy to leverage. So at least in my kind of limited experience with languages, like it felt a lot easier to build a small circuit breaker that, or in terms of code size, I guess, that is functional. I can be actually used. Like it's, it's a little bit past the trivial example just for the blog post. And if I feel that it's pretty close to, I can take that code, put it on production and, and it's going to work fine because I'm already leveraging the gen state machine <laughs> to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting. Yeah. And I think one, a single gen server, you're like even thinking of like gen stage or like uh, Broadway, where I, I might only need one producer that has like, here's the list of stuff. And, and then it's just, it, it's a matter of like, it just takes time and maybe a number of workers to parse it all out and, and have it all done. So what happens if you have a circuit breaker on something that's a little more long running, long lived, and you get into that half open state and you've got like a thousand things that need to slowly go through and you deploy and you wipe out your gen server. So the question is like, is it, does it, is there some persistence to it? Right. Yeah. Hot code deploys, right? Hot code deploys. <laughs> yeah. Cause everybody does hot code deploys, right? <laughs> Yeah, I guess that, that's uh, that's a little tricky in implementation. I, I don't I don't know if I have a good answer top of my head for you. Like that's something that definitely needs to be accounted for in the use case. I don't know if I would keep every single job uh, in the state of that that particular server. Like you need to fall back to something else. A uh, job queue system, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. Well done. A, a, a background, a background job processor. <laughs> yeah, but I've I've done that too. Where you know, where you'd say I want to have this this request go to an external partner system or something like that, and it'd go into you know what is the producer and its first job was to say I'm going to record this job, and then I'm kind of writing my own job queue in a in a way. I guess my point is, is that, yeah, you do have to think about these things. It does depend on the system you're talking to and integrating with. And how quickly can we go back uh, out of this half open state? And it really is dependent. It's like, well, I know this, this system, it can handle it. This system, this other one, it can't, you know, so it's really case by case, isn't it? Yeah, it's case by case. And it, 
that's the devil in the details of the implementation. The other thing is like the, in the there's implementations or use cases where we don't need to keep track of this. Like uh, I can fall back into an implementation that we did for this large retailer that is going to be unnamed uh, for the for the sake of uh, privacy. But we had to build uh, between their front end that was a little bit more of a PWA. We had to build this bit of a middleware or proxy that was handling the request to a very legacy sluggish backend system for getting inventory, right? Uh, inventory and availability of the products. And at that point, it's the that middleware has to handle uh, the communication. If it fails, like it's it's a page request that failed or some data that failed to render on on the front end side, but there is no need to keep track of that. Uh, it, it serves no purpose in, in that sense. So circuit breaker would be, we, they didn't actually implement the, uh, circuit, uh, the circuit breaker pattern on that one. And, um, we, we ended up hitting the situation where our front end was so successful during so much traffic that we took down the, <laughs> the backend servers just with the, the entire pressure of the traffic. So it would have been really helpful to have the circuit breaker pattern there in order to provide that little bit of a fallback and relief to those legacy systems that we have no control over. Yeah. I think that's that's a, a learning point, right? Like, because yes. until you start to reach that threshold, you don't know that, that you need the circuit breaker pattern. But what I love about this conversation is like, you, dear listener, you're hearing this. It's like, when when you start to see this pattern happen in some situation, you're like, ah, that's what we need. We need a circuit breaker pattern. Like, we're, we're now encountering this problem. So I don't know that you can necessarily anticipate everything and build it ahead of time. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, and that's the the value of patterns, right? It's not they're not recipes that you just go and implement. They're just references and, and guidelines for solving some of the problems. I was actually curious to hear you guys' opinion on uh, design patterns in the Elixir community. I've been kind of trying to get a little bit of feedback and see what is on the while. Start a couple threads on the forums uh, and the Elixir forums, and it seems to be always a, a bit of a mixed reaction where there is this heavy aversion to the same patterns or even the mention of it. Well, we don't need them. That's a object-oriented programming thing. Like, there is no place for that here. Uh, what do you guys think? I think it's a fun question because, <laughs> you know, like, I, I've heard the answer of, well, all, all you need is modules and functions, right? And it's like, well, yeah, that's how it's implemented. But still, you know, there are patterns that we all do. I, when I think of like a behavior, right? That's a pattern. Yeah. A protocol is a pattern. There are... are patterns, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know that they're named, the pattern that I use for writing a certain kind of a solution. You know, I'm going to always kind of approach it the same way. That's an unnamed pattern, but it's a pattern. It's like, I think we all have patterns. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, for context, I think it's worth mentioning there's the, what people often refer to is there's a book called The Gang of Four, and it's yeah. uh, Design Patterns. Okay. And Alan's laughing. <laughs> I, I have a whole blog post on this because this is an emotional response as as well right like p patterns and and what we think is is good you know it's not it's not all just uh scientific now i think in in the object-oriented world it's treated a lot more scientifically but when when the implementer faces the problem i think it's much more em emotional and experience driven than we might give it credit for because a lot of a lot of patterns will work just fine. <laughs> Some of them have trade-offs, right? But there's not necessarily one pattern that is maybe the best pattern for that. 
like, you know, Alan and I were just talking earlier about how like there's the the circuit breaker pattern. And that's that's a it's a great pattern for a lot of solutions, but you can solve that similar, you know, problems, you can solve it with similar patterns. Like I just used a background processing job that gives me some of the same kind of effects. It's just a list of trade-offs. And it's really just based on your, you know, your experience, I guess, and and what kind of trade-offs you you want. So I, I have a blog post about this and we'll have the link in the show notes on it, but it's just, you know, we, I, I think it's about having fun <laughs> too. We program to solve problems, but like you're doing that over a length of time that we are human beings, you know, experiencing and we want to want to be able to communicate with each other and be able to express like, this is the problem I'm facing. It's like, oh, I've, I've experienced that too. And this is the way that I solved it. And these are the patterns that I used. One of the common things that to say about like functional programming versus object oriented programming is, is yeah, is like functional programming is just modules and functions. There are no like patterns to it. like this solid principles uh, that like, object orienting like likes to say you know and point out like you don't really need that in functional i don't think that's necessarily true but there is some sort of truth to that like you can't just say that there are no patterns in functional programming of course there are there's plenty of them lots of them that's one of the reasons why i love elixir (laughs) but it's not maybe not so pigeonholed into things like the solid principles that i would say i'll stop with this that one of the things that I like about functional programming over OOP, not to say that OOP is bad, just saying that this is why I like functional programming, is that small problems and large problems are treated the same way in my mind. In in OOP, you have different scales of problems. And with those different scales, you have different kinds of solutions. I don't experience that as well as much with, with functional programming. Big problems or small problems, I approach it the same way. And that that to me is is really really comforting. I like that, but it's not as simple to say that there are no patterns, <laughs> that it's just functions everywhere. Like that's a fun thing to say, but there are patterns in those functions. <laughs> Let's just name it. <laughs> I like that description, David. The size doesn't really matter. And when you think about like pure functions, and you know you can just kind of keep breaking it down into the smallest chunk that I can reliably test and and solve. That's great. When I think back to at least how I understand it for how design patterns, like the design patterns book that we talk about with the Gang of Four, how that was written, is it was these academics went around to all these different companies and said, how are you solving these kinds of problems? And they ended up seeing that people were doing the same kinds of solutions. And so they said, oh, we'll just take that kind of a solution and like this company was doing it and that company was doing it and we'll just name it. And so we can teach people this named thing. And then I think people kind of thought like, oh, this is they, they treat it as a reference. You know, some of the patterns were very similar. You know, like, it's just nuance that was different between like a facade and... Can you remember the other one? Presenter versus facade. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like what, what's the difference? You know, and, yeah, I'm sure there is a difference. I think when it comes to Elixir, you know, we have patterns in that, uh, like a with statement is a pattern. It is a... And that kind of defines a pattern for the code for the functions that we're calling in there. Like if I'm doing a pipeline, and I'm piping all these functions, the way I design each one of those functions is to be called in that pipeline. So that's part of a pattern that I'm saying that the first argument is going to be this thing that's going through this whole chain of functions. That's a pattern. I I don't know. (laughs) It's an interesting thing. I'm undecided. 
Fair enough. And the, the thing that I would add is like, I think there has been a lot of people that have been, uh, for lack of a return, uh, burned by misapplication of patterns. And then the fun, the really fun of, of Elixir and functional programming is that we don't need a lot of patterns. Uh, like every, like pretty much all the creational ones, like factories, facades, like we really don't need uh, those in order to solve the problems. Like we already have a lot of those things in the language. I agree. In the stack. Now you you can have fun with some of the most useful stuff, which is like circuit breaking patterns. Technically, a microservice is one because it deals with that specific scenario to separate systems, but it's really applicable, really easy to implement in Elixir. So we don't have to deal with maybe the the more abuse, <laughs> or we don't need the more abuse patterns in program. I agree. I don't think we need to stress about it, but I, I can totally understand like the perspective of someone coming new to the community and saying, you know. The way I felt like I had competency in being a good OO developer is I went and researched and understood these patterns and tried to see how I could apply them. So they come to the Elixir space, which is FP, and they're saying, well, how do I do that? How do I do the same thing I was doing there where I, I learned the patterns? And I don't know that we have a good set of like, this is what you do. The, here is the set of patterns. You know, we have a, a collection of things like, like Def Delegate, you know, like there is, you know, there might be some patterns with how I do namespace organization. And how I want my top level namespaces to kind of fan out underneath and and protect the rest of my application so they're not reaching deep into a namespace. You know, like that's a pattern. But I don't know we have names for them all. So I do feel for that new developer who's coming and wanting to find that rule of thumb of like, how should I do this? Funny you mentioned that because this is that's the reason why I started looking into Circuit Breaker to begin with. Like I, I'm actually working slowly, but I'm working on a, a, a book for documenting some of the most useful patterns in Elixir. Uh, because I, I, one of my surprises or thing that, uh, something that surprised me is that there is really not a lot of uh, talk about those. And yes, I get some of the aversion for that, but there, there is a lot of use of having some of those patterns named and documented, like CQRS, Event Sourcing, Sagas, like uh, Circuit Breaker. They're all relevant and useful in this space, and they don't really go against the grain of the, the Elixir way of doing things. That reminds me, uh, when I was learning Elixir, uh, I was also learning Ecto at the same time. And Ecto was a big, big change from the patterns that I knew about how to access data, right? One of the most useful things that I, I found when I was learning Ecto and Elixir at the time was the little Ecto cookbook, free little book put out by Plat Platform Tech at the time, Dashbit now. So I, I really do think that there are, there's a really good value to having something like well, they called it the, the little Ecto cookbook. Is it little or just Ecto cookbook? Whatever. We'll have a link to it. <laughs> Free. So I wonder, yeah, if, if you're doing something similar, Alan, like I wonder what it would be like to have like a maybe a wiki of, of like common Elixir patterns of things like OTP is another big thing that folks have to learn when they're learning Elixir. You know, like that's a new concept to them. So seeing some, seeing some familiar patterns on how to accomplish X, like I have like in, in phrasing it in a way of like problem is X. This is one way you can solve, solve that with uh, gen servers, for example. I think that would be really helpful, especially to, um, to new, <laughs> heck, if veteran users like myself, uh, we, we forget a lot as we go, go on too. You know, or or have moments of like I'm just brain dead. I just need to look at something <laughs> and copy and paste. <laughs> and fair enough. I, I I hadn't actually thought about that wiki. I think that's a pretty uh, excellent idea. And I think there is something very very similar. Um, I think it's called microservices.io. 
uh, that does exactly the, what you just described, but for microservices specifically. So that, that might be a, a good little thing. <laughs> I can copy and paste microservices? <laughs> <laughs> you can also download more RAM. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Alan, I've really enjoyed our talk and I, I want to respect your time because I know you have uh, somewhere else to be. But before you go, I would love to get your thoughts. Uh, you mentioned that SiteGuardian as this project that you're using the pedal stack and which is that it, it's Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine and LiveView. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on just what that experience has been like and what you've enjoyed or found frustrating with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, funny enough, SiteGuardian uh, actually started as... A small, like a offshoot of another larger project. I, I made the typical developer uh, mistake of starting a side project where massive scope, really complex architecture, and I hit a couple of walls. So I decided, okay, screw it. Let's, let's try tackle something a little bit more narrow. That's a couple of things that I want to validate in terms of like Battlestack being one of them, architecture, some of the other stuff that I'm doing in, in the background for processing uh, jobs, uh, SSL certificates, whatnot. So I wanted to try all of that in a smaller scope, and I decided to go with Petal. And the most surprising thing is, I, I the and I, I'm having a little bit of a hard time articulating this, so I uh, I'll do my best. But is the development speed and like how easy it is to like really develop in the system, implement logic, and how fast I've been able to move to build a, and a prototype. I, I think uh, I've been tracking my time uh, spent on the project weekends and, and over vacation. And I, I don't think I put more than maybe four or five weeks of development all alone. And so and I'm pretty happy with the the front end, the architecture performance, uh, how easy it's been for me to uh, add new functionality, new checks into the system. And compared to if I was using Ruby and Rails or some of the other stacks, Laravel, I feel that I'm at, at least twice as fast uh, that if I was using those stacks. And it's not one specific thing. I think it's the combination of the language. Uh, Tailwind is fantastic for getting, getting a really clean, solid UI. I'm actually paying for uh, the UI product, uh, which is 100% worth the money, in my opinion. So not a lot of frustrations, actually. I think it's been really, really, really enjoyable to work with that stack. Awesome. Yeah, I've also paid personally for the Tailwind UI commercial package. Yeah. I kind of think it's like what you said, it's like it's about velocity and just speed. I kind of think it, and it is, it's, you can't point to one particular thing and say, this is what did it. You know, it's, it's like the collection of things, in my mind, reduces friction. And so like, like Tailwind reduces friction. Alpine reduces friction. And like LiveView reduces friction. It's like I, all these things like just combine to create speed ups. And some of that is because it's co-locating style and JavaScript behavior all in one place in my live view. So I'm not like jumping around to different files and, you know, having to context switch. I was like, now I'm in JavaScript land. And, you know, it's like, it's just, I have those efficiencies. So I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Thank you. Well, Alan, I know we were coming up to time. So if people want to get in touch with you or follow up with you or want to learn more about like the circuit breaker pattern or anything like that, where would you point them to or what's the best way to contact you? Um, yeah, uh, you can uh, contact me on Twitter at Alan McGregor. Uh, you can uh, go to my website, which has all the contact information and latest blog posts, uh, which is alanmcgregor.com. 
little bit of an egocentric uh, in, in my case, but it's easy to find me online. Uh, and same thing with GitHub. Um, and actually, I'm working on releasing Site Guardian source codes, uh, fully open source. Uh, right now it's closed, but I, I have to do a little bit of cleanup. That will be available for people to, to reference to that and maybe contribute. Awesome. Well, be sure to let us know so we can let other people know that's available. Well, thank you, Alan, for coming on and talking with us and sharing your insights and, and experiences. And thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use or on your social media so others can discover the show more easily.